Hey guys, what's up? It's Michael Sean, uh, and I'm excited for this episode, but I do have one disclaimer before you guys start listening to it, and it is that when I did this recording, the audio got super corrupted, and I'm not sure why, but I like the content so much, I did my best to restore it and uh, get it up to listening but basically what happened is some parts were sped up some parts were slowed down I don't know if it was a bit rate issue or whatever but I spent a lot of time trying to fix it I think I made it to where it's very listenable so without further ado our final episode of first Corinthians <laughs> Unison Church Podcast. This is Michael Sean, and I feel like it's been forever since I was staring at my computer background doing a solo podcast. Like, I'm just looking at my empty screens here, and uh, it's just me in a room with a microphone, which is kind of how this whole thing started. It's weird because um, this is a stance that I'm used to taking in other things, but uh, after doing so many interviews, it almost feels a little bit foreign to me. So, we are doing a special episode today because it is the wrap-up of our First Corinthians project that we've been doing in this podcast, and I hope you guys have really enjoyed where we've gone, some of the topics that we've covered. Today, I want to do something a little different than uh, something that I have not done yet, and uh, that's because I went back, I listened through all of the interviews, like each individual one, again, and uh, I just found that there were some some common themes. There's a couple things I wanted to wrap up saying, so today's going to kind of be a mix my final thoughts, some things that I wish I had said, but I didn't yet. And so um, that's that's going to happen today. But also just there's a couple passages that um, several of my guests touched on. And so I, I want to lead off with just saying a huge thank you to the people that contributed to this project. It's uh, It was a really cool opportunity that I had. I got to talk to a lot of people that are very well read in scripture. And I got to talk to some people who went through this process with me anyway and i think that was uh that was huge you know that was a really cool thing i think it was unique because many of you listening may just be um what might be considered lay people that's you're not in church leadership you're not necessarily a a full-time um church worker uh maybe theologian professor all, all that kind of stuff, you know, you're just somebody that goes to church, has an interest in the Bible, and I got to talk to several people that were that, that that, that were lay people, they just, they go to church, they study the, the scripture for the sake of getting close to Jesus for their own personal walk, and uh, I hope that you were able to relate to some of them, some of what they said, and um, kind of get... Um, a unique but also familiar perspective on First Corinthians. So uh, that's really cool. I do want to lead with something right off the bat. This is one of those things that I kind of wish I had said, but I did not say. And uh, so I'd like to rectify that and try to clear that up a little bit. Hopefully it hasn't caused anybody distress. Um, but I, I just want to remind people of kind of like the nature of, honestly, Paul's epistles in general but uh, especially 1 Corinthians. So we mentioned at the beginning how 1 Corinthians is written in response to a letter. It's written by Paul, who founded this church. Church writes a letter to Paul. Paul writes a letter back, and uh, it's corrected. He's trying to correct some of the issues that 1 Corinthians are dealing with. And uh, we get this 
this insight into what I'm about to say in First uh, Corinthians five verses nine through eleven. But let me say it first, and then and then I'll read the passage. First Corinthians is meant for people who are in the church, who have dedicated themselves to following Jesus and to being in community with each other. They're a local church context. They are trying to spend time with one another, growing and developing as Jesus followers. And that is the context into which Paul writes. So what we shouldn't do is take 1 Corinthians and start throwing it at people that are outside the church, people that are lost, uh, people that don't claim to be Jesus followers. This is not the kind of uh, stuff that we should lead off our conversations with our lost friends and neighbors. Um, this is the kind of stuff that is for in-house, um, you know, the deep problems of being with one another as the church really is, is what this is all about and uh, how we deal with each other, how we deal with our um, church leadership, how we deal with um, following Jesus closely in the context of the local church, um, even things like the Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, whatever you want to call it, the, you know, that there's practical instructions for that. There's instructions about how to use your gifts inside of the church. There's instructions for how to deal with people that are um, stumbling and that are not um, fulfilling the vow that they made to Christ that they would follow him at all costs. And so actually it's in, it's, it's that specific contest. First Corinthians five is um, sort of like our like quote unquote church discipline passage where we have the guy who's, who's sinning in such a way that Paul says, man, you guys need to deal with this in, in such a harsh manner that he needs to be, um, what's called del delivered to Satan, whatever that is. He says, remove the evil person from among you as the last verse of chapter five. Um, and the idea is that in sort of um, doing some kind of public discipline, you're you're trying to restore him to godliness and uh, invite him back into the church eventually as well. Um, and so it's kind of our church discipline passage. You know, that starts out in uh, verse nine with this. I wrote to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, I did not mean the immoral people of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote you not to associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral, a greedy, an idolater, or verbally abusive, a drunkard, or a swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. So Paul's really specific in that. He's like, I told you not to associate with sexually immoral people, but I'm not talking about lost people because that's normal for the world. You'd have to leave the world to not associate with those people. What I'm talking about is people that claim to be Jesus followers, claim to be members of this local church, claim to be committed to you and to the other believers in the assembly, yet are still pursuing a lifestyle that's defined by sexual immorality. And so that kind of corrective nature in that moment, I think, highlights an overall theme. Paul is talking to people inside the church, people that are already committed to Jesus, people that have, like I said, made a vow to Christ to follow him at all costs. And so when they're acting in uh, discontinuity with that, that's where Paul steps in and starts making correction. So this kind of tone and corrective stance that Paul is taking, I don't think he would take that necessarily 
to lost people in general. He's talking to people that are already in, that are already supposed to be associated with Jesus, and he's highlighting ways that they're not doing the greatest job at that, and um, trying to trying to bring them to reconciliation with each other and with the way of Jesus. So the next thing we're going to talk about is something that I think came up in every single podcast in this series, and that is the wonderful, mysterious, confusing, and maybe slightly distressing chapter that we know as 1 Corinthians 7. 1 Corinthians 7 is that chapter where Paul starts talking, really it's about like marital status, and he's saying, hey, if you guys are single, you should try to stay single. Uh, if you're married, you should try to stay married. You know, let let everybody in whatever state they're called, uh, therein abide with God, as the King James says. And uh, I think that that gets us into trouble. And of course, right at the beginning of that as well, we have um, some conversations about husband and wives and uh, their um, sexual relationship in particular and about how they should be mutually submitted to each other, how they have the rights over each other's body, and how um, the husband needs to submit to the wife, the wife needs to submit to the husband. And right off the bat, it's kind of a steamy chapter. It's, uh, you know, really... I mean, Paul talks about it all. He talks about virgins. He talks about people that are um, espoused to each other. He talks about husband and wives and their sexual relationships. He talks about um, slavery versus freedom. You know, he talks about all this stuff. And he, and essentially the, the boiled down idea is that we need to um, be content with Jesus, with having a relationship with God, that needs to be the primary focus. And um, so many of us get hung up on trying to find a spouse or trying to get out of um, maybe a, a marriage that we see as problematic. And, and we're not talking about uh, abusive marriages here. What we're talking about is um, just one where you're sort of discontent and you feel like you'll find contentment um, outside of that marriage. Paul's saying, hey, you know, it's not about changing your marital status. It's actually just about following Jesus wherever you were called. And each one of those is an opportunity to follow God. So we had a lot of different takes on this as we kept going. You know, we talked about finding contentment in our relationship with God. We talked about the difficulty of submitting to God's will for our life. Um, we talked about, you know, many of those, we talked about the inspiration of this passage as Paul kind of highlights the fact that some of this is his opinion and not a direct word from God, and um, it's a really, really confusing chapter. It's it's tough, and uh, I think when reading it, we really need to keep what is the main point, the main point, try not to add or take away things from it. You know, the main point really is this contentment that we have with Jesus, this primacy to that relationship that we have. So often we get hung up with other relationships. It's not that other relationships aren't important. It's not even that other relationships, like they could even enhance our walk with the Lord. But so many of us keep that, like, we idolize it, you know? And um, there was actually a really cool uh, a really cool quote I wanted to read because 
I'm reading this uh, this book by uh, one of my favorite authors. Um, the book's called Does the Bible Support Same-Sex Marriage? So it really doesn't have anything to do with um, 1 Corinthians 7 necessarily, uh, but it's by uh, Preston Sprinkle. And he, he has this quote on page 52 of it that I just wanted to read because I feel like it kind of speaks into this. It says this, We've created an environment where not marrying the person of your dreams could feel like a nightmare. Theologically, though, there's nothing in the rich and challenging call to follow Jesus, who happened to be a single man of marital age, that promises us a lovely spouse who will complete our humanity. A robust understanding of Christian marriage includes the recognition that neither sex nor marriage is essential for human flourishing, we should be theologically suspicious of any argument, whether from conservatives or progressives, that implies that people can't really live a meaningful and flourishing life if they don't marry and have sex with the person that they sexually desire. End quote. I think that's such a good way to kind of highlight, especially right at the beginning, man, we've created an environment where not marrying the person of your dreams feels like a nightmare. And that's huge. I mean, how many movies have you watched where that's the whole point? It's like married, like, like how many um, Disney movies or like other princess genre movies does it start with like, oh, you're, you know, you're in this, um, pl the, this planned engagement, your parents puts forth this uh, groom for you and you can't stand them and you end up finding the person of your dreams somewhere else and it's about overcoming that and the end goal is like the person of your dreams and to me I feel like like that idea that the end the happy ever after for you is being married to the person of your dreams uh, that is, I think, done more damage to people, and in particular the church, because we demonized all these other forms of media, and we allowed this one to creep past our defenses, and we even encouraged it a lot of times, and uh, then we baptized it and said that with like the whole purity culture thing, where it's like if you follow Jesus' way of sexuality, or at least what we presented as Jesus' way of sexuality the end goal for you is like this perfect marriage where you're sexually fulfilled all the time. And, um, so we baptize this like happily ever after with the person of your dreams narrative. And we have done so much damage to people presenting a happy marriage as the be all end all goal of your life. And I have been, I personally have been a victim of this. Like I, I totally had that as my, end goal, you know, that, uh, I would, you know, graduate college, get married to my high school sweetheart, and we would live happily ever after with, uh, you know, no problems, um, in our relationship because we saved ourselves, quote unquote, for marriage. And, um, yeah, this baptized Disney-esque happily ever after with the persons of your dream uh is not at all in it doesn't there's no room in the christian way of living for that the christian ideal is um 
in this life, we are designed to glorify God and to be united with Him through Jesus. And that is the uh, happily ever after narrative of the scripture, if you want to use that word, is that one day we will be physically united with Christ in a new eternity where this this life that we're so preoccupied with um, finding contentment in somebody else, we're so preoccupied with till death do us part that we forget that there is an eternity waiting for us where all of our desires will, will, will be fulfilled, not in another human, but in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and Yahweh, our Creator. And um, that is what Paul is getting at here, is that we need to find, try to find a way to be content with what Jesus has given us, a relationship with Yahweh that we have lost. And that's what 1 Corinthians 7 is, is all about. And so I think what we can do is we can get in the weeds uh, and we can start talking about you know, other, other things that we theologically glean from this passage, but I don't want to take it too far. And I, I do think that the meat of the passages is in that, is in finding contentment with, with God and, and, and being okay. But, um, that doesn't mean that we don't necessarily that, you know, even Paul makes allowance in the, in the passage saying like, Hey, if you, if you have somebody that's in your life that, uh, you want to marry, do it. You know, you, you, you haven't done anything wrong if you get married. Marriage is still beautiful. It's, it's you know, it's, it is it is um, talked about in Scripture, and it's important, um, but it's not the be-all, end-all. And uh, it's really more like that is a circumstance in your life that can help with the main thing, which is glorifying God. Um, and, uh, you know, spending an eternity with him. Marriage can help you with that. Singleness can help you with that. There's a lot, a lot, a lot of scripture. You know, I'd say that. Maybe I take that back. There are several passages in scripture that talk about how marriage does that. This is one where Paul is talking about how singleness does that and saying, hey, there's some stuff. If you stay single, you won't have to worry about it. Um, and uh, so maybe there, you know, it's possible that being single is actually more preferred uh, because you don't have to deal with some of the, what he calls worldly issues of being married, which is how to please your spouse. And I think that's, uh, that's what catches us by surprise is how Paul did that. And if you're surprised, imagine how the uh, first century person would have been surprised by that. Um, because, you know, marriage and family was everything at that point, and it was the way that you propagated not only your family, but your standing in society, your wealth, all that stuff. And so for Paul to say, hey, stay single, focus on bringing glory to God, that would have been um, mind-boggling to the original audience. And so I think that's where, where Paul's going. He's saying, man, um, he's, he's almost shocking them so that they can see the reality that Jesus is everything that you need, and you need to find your fulfillment with him, and make him the primary focus of your life, not finding your dream boy or girl. That is kind of the uh, the idea of 1 Corinthians 7. And uh, I think we did a good job exploring that um, in different ways. And so, like I said, we all touched on it. We all touched on different facets of the conversation. So if you're interested in what we just talked about, go back and listen through it. Because pretty much every podcast in this series, had, we've had some discourse on 1 Corinthians 7. I think it's all been pretty helpful. I 
if you have not uh, figured this out yet, what I'm doing is I'm going through 1 Corinthians from beginning to end. I'm trying to touch on things that we talked about in each podcast. So that's where we're at now. So we were just, uh, we talked about 1 Corinthians 5, 9 through 11, 1 Corinthians 7. Now we're going to 1 Corinthians 10, 23 to 24. And I just want to take a moment to kind of clarify my interpretation of this passage because I kind of danced around it with a bunch of people. And um, in in clarifying what you're going to find is that I actually interpret this passage in a pretty different way than how a lot of the a lot of the guests on this show have been interpreting it and um not not necessarily that they are uh wrong in their interpretation that's really not my goal in in saying this i think um the the principles that they were applying to this passage are absolutely true in in scripture but i want to clarify kind of what i'm thinking when i read this chapter so first corinthians 10 23 through 24 says this everything is permissible but not everything is beneficial everything is per- permissible but not everything builds up no one is to seek his own good but the good of the other person i think i explained in one of the podcasts that my traditional understanding of this is that when when paul says everything is permissible. What he's referring to is sort of this uh, freedom in Christ that is talked about a lot in Galatians, um, specifically, which is another another appalling text, but um, this freedom in Christ that we have such that we do not have any rules, in particular, um, similar to kind of this pharisaical um, Jewish law that Paul himself spills a lot of ink talking about elsewhere in Romans and Galatians specifically is where, where I think it's probably the most amount of ink spilled. But, um, so so I've traditionally been told when Paul says everything is first, what he's saying is he's standing against that and he's saying um, we are not under any kind of obligation and uh, we're free from any kind of statute or um, judgment that tells us to act a certain way. But not everything is beneficial. So under underneath that, you know, kind of what he says in uh, Galatians, where he says, don't use your freedom as an occasion to sin. So don't you, you, the fact that you're separated from the law, um, there are still certain things that are, are helpful and not helpful. Now, here's the, the difference between that passage that I just referenced in Galatians and this one. Um, what I hear is that there's a lot of like pragmatic uses of this where it's like god has designed us to live in a certain way when we live according to the way of jesus we flourish practically in our life and uh it has a lot of like proverbs principle to it which is called the retribution principle if you do good then good will come to you that's what i hear a lot of people doing so it's like yeah you're not under law but if you if you kind of follow these rules set out by god uh these these statutes follow you know given by god what 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 the Tanakh would refer to as wisdom, if you kind of follow wisdom, then you will flourish. And so, yes, you don't have to do anything, but if you do follow after wisdom, it will be more beneficial than if it doesn't. My my biggest issue with that is actually verse 24, the verse that's right after this. Uh, because it says no one is to seek his own good, 
but the good of the other person. And here's the weird thing about that. Um, when we talk about uh, the retribution principle and can and wisdom, well, specifically in Proverbs, even like if you if you um, think about Proverbs, it's like if you live according to wisdom, then you will be rewarded. But verse twenty four is actually all about how um, if you don't seek your own good. If you don't look for a reward, you should instead be looking for the good of other people. And so actually what I see maybe in this, um, and in even like a, just a more overarching theology, is that while we may not be subject to the law in the same way that the ancient Israelites were subject to the Torah, we are still captivated by a law of love where we're actually giving up our rights, our prosperity, our whatever, for the good of someone else. I don't actually think Jesus going to the cross, this idea of laying down your life so that you could serve others. There wasn't necessarily, like, I'm not saying that it's against the conventional wisdom of Proverbs, but what I am saying is that it, it, there's tension with it, like there's dissonance between the retribution principle of do good and you get a reward and the sacrificial life of Christ. So um, with that, as kind of my theological background, when Paul says everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial, everything is permissible, but not everything builds up, what a lot of people will say is that maybe when Paul says everything is permissible, he's quoting what the Corinthians may have asked him or stated to him, and he's saying, no, not everything is permissible. Uh, in fact, not everything is beneficial. No, not everything is permissible. In fact, there are certain things that build build you up and there are certain things that don't and he's not saying you can do whatever you want but you'll do better if you follow after the spirit what he's instead doing is saying you guys think everything is okay but in reality you're still compelled to live a certain way if you've laid down your life to follow christ so i am not really interested in uh resolving the tension between um, Paul's anti-law and anti-legalism theology that he mostly applies in contrast with the Old Testament law, the tension between that and the tension between um, really the whole letter of Corinthians where he's saying, you guys are living a certain way. Jesus compels you to live a different way. Or, or this idea of repentance and following Christ and belonging to Christ and therefore being obligated to live the way Christ wants you to live, as as is said previously, where our bodies are not our own, they're, they're bought by Christ, and so therefore we should glorify him. I mean, that kind of sounds like a law, but it's it's certainly more open in the law. I'm not interested really in this podcast in resolving the tension between Paul's teaching on freedom and yet living by the um, law of love, as I think is the best the best way to to uh, put it forth, especially in Corinthians with, with, with 1 Corinthians 13. Um, 
But uh, what I am saying is that I am going to take it a little bit differently. I do think that actually Paul is calling us to a standard, and I think in particular that standard is clear in the instance of uh, 1 Corinthians um, 10 here because it's kind of a rehashing of the whole like eating temple meat uh, debate where previously he says, you know, it's the weaker person that is going to be against this because of the law. Because the law would have compelled you not to eat the temple meat. And Paul's kind of like, yeah, don't really care if you eat it or don't. It's kind of like a weaker faith to do that. But then later on, he's going to draw like a really strict line in the sand. And uh, those lines in the sand are going to be twofold. One is going to be not to eat at a temple feast. Because why would you eat the um, bread and body, or the, the body and blood of Christ, but then... Um, eat at a table where demons are being worshipped. So he's going to say, you cannot do that. He's going to lay down a line in the sand there. And then he's more importantly going to lay down a line in the sand to say, you should be living with your brother or sister in mind. So if what you're doing is a problem for your brother and sister and you're genuinely causing them to have distress and even to um, decelerate in their walk towards Christ-likeness, then that's wrong. Well, that's two rules that Paul just set forth in this conversation. So clearly not everything is permissible. So that's my kind of my take on, on 1 Corinthians 10. Like I said, I think there's probably a lot more work that I have to do about um, this kind of tension between law and grace, freedom, and uh, freedom and death to self, um, you know, um, belonging to Christ, versus being freed from sin. These are all tensions in Paul's writing, and I'm not exactly sure of the, the nuance with which they work together, but I know that they're there, and I think this passage really highlights that. Perhaps one of the most talked about portions, this is another one that almost every single person mentioned, was 1 Corinthians 11. Interestingly enough, there's actually two things in 1 Corinthians 11 that are huge for me. The first one is about head coverings, and um, also wrapped up in it is men and women and their roles in the church. The second one is the Lord's Supper and uh, what in the world is going on in Corinth in the Lord's Supper. So let's talk about them in order. The first appears uh, with head coverings. And I actually think we did a really good job kind of getting to the bottom of this, similarly to 1 Corinthians 7. You really need to keep what is main in the passage, main in your interpretation of the passage. And so um, the first thing that we have is that both men and women were prophesying in the church of 1 Corinthians. And uh, we've got to realize that both men and women have a place in the church for doing the ministry of the church, that they are similarly gifted and that they are designed to be active in the church in uh, loud ways and quiet ways. And uh, so, um, so we got to start there. I'm not making a comment about church leadership because I don't think that's what Paul's talking about in this passage at all. And so um, maybe we could talk about that some other time. Uh, but uh, what I am saying is that we certainly should not be silencing men or women. They should both have a place to speak, to pray, to prophesy, to exercise their gifts in the context of church, on stage, off stage, with kids, with adults, with men, with women, all that stuff. I think as soon as you remove the platform from uh, somebody, you start to get into issues theologically with this passage. The second, though, thing that I think we should say is that 
there could actually be a difference with how men and women serve. There could be something, um, you know, and I, I, I tend to think about this as a, uh, a difference of perspective and perhaps, um, perhaps there is just a difference in every, in pe- person to person, but also with, um, be- between the sexes, there may actually be a difference with, um, the way that women prophesy versus the way that men prophesy. And uh, we need to make space in the church for that. And sometimes, in certain contexts, that may mean that it looks a little different for both. And so I think that's really the heart of what's going on in in 1 Corinthians 11, that Paul is not actually concerned about head coverings, because I think he chews on all these ideas, and he goes through things so quickly that I don't think he actually um, has a compulsion uh, about whether women should or should not wear head coverings. But what I do think is that it's possible that women wearing head coverings while prophesying, or minim- at minimum, women maybe having, um, I don't know, uh, maybe avoiding certain hairstyles or having a certain hairstyle, maybe women um, presenting themselves in that way was more advantageous for them being active in the church prophesying. And uh, I think that's kind of what Paul might be getting at in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, when he says, uh, you know, haven't put on a head covering. Um, I think it's kind of like if 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 wearing a head covering while prophesying makes for a, you know removes a barrier for you to be exercising your gift in the church, then do it. Um, I think maybe that's kind of where Paul's getting at in First Corinthians eleven. I think it's mostly a contextual thing. I think we may probably don't fully understand um, why this conversation is even included. Um, but I mean, ultimately, uh, I think. It's really important that men and women are treated equally. In verses 11 and 12, it says in the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, and a man is not independent of woman. For just as woman came from man, so man comes through woman, and all things come from God. And so I think this is huge. And men and women are to be equal in the church. There is no reason to cause division because of, you know, people's sex. Um, there's just no reason for that. And, and we do it so often we, call, we do this delineation between what men can do and what women can do, and um, we make value ju- assessments based on your sex, and we uh, assign roles based on your sex, and it's like, this is so anti-scriptural. Both men and women are needed in the church, and certainly there should be no value assessment based on your sex. Both men and women are needed. They're essential to accomplishing the mission of God and we need to we need to be serious about that we need to think about how in each of our individual church contexts we can bolster both men and women for ministry moving into the second half of 11 we talk about the Lord's Supper and uh, the Lord's Supper is kind of why I started into this uh, conversation in the first place because I wanted to wanted to make sure that we were taking the Lord's Supper appropriately and we were giving honor to uh, Jesus and his his body and blood and his sacrifice as we handle uh, communion and what I determined I think the biggest takeaway for me is that um, we have to 
be have a really strict focus on um, unity. And it's so it's so important. I mean, it, this, the passage starts out in verse 18. To begin with, I hear that when you come together in the church, there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. And uh, that's that's really what the idea here is, is that when you get together, you're sharing a table with these people, regardless of how you're doing the Lord's Supper. So if you're going to allow there to be division, then you are grieving the Spirit and how you take Lord's Supper, because how dare you have communion with Christ if you refuse to have communion with Christ's bride. And I think that that's such a strong theme, and we, we mess it up so much because we're so individualistic in our uh, Western culture and we just want to, we just want everything to be about our relationship with Jesus and ourselves. And uh, in reality, you cannot love Jesus without loving your brother. And that starts in the church. So you really cannot love Jesus if you don't love the church. And I'm not saying every church is healthy and, and you, can, you can't write off, you know, abuse and you can't write off stupid things that people that claim to be Christians do because people that claim to be Christians do stupid things. They, I do stupid things sometimes. Um, but what you have to do is you have to find a body of believers who you can love and give yourselves to. Because once again, how dare you have communion with Jesus and not have communion with his people? And uh, I think that's what this, this passage is about primarily. And I think, I think we need to do a better job in my church. And this is something that I'm, you know, as a pastor, I'm, I need to do a better job not just talking about our own individual walks with the Lord when we talk about communion, but also talking about our unity as a body in the church when we do communion. That when we have communion with Jesus, we also have communion with each other. And it's uh, intrinsically tied together. And we need to do a really good job seeking the good of others. And uh, interestingly enough, Paul goes right into that in the next chapter. 1 Corinthians 12 is one of my favorite portions of Scripture. 1 Corinthians 12 about the body. Uh, it is so cool. I don't know about you, but there were certainly times in my upbringing where I was in contexts and I just felt like I was not adding anything. And the way I was raised, I was very much raised to... Um, jump in, get involved, help out. Um, uh, I was very much um, called to perform in a certain way, meaning, and what I mean by that is just um, whatever context I'm in, I, I should be thriving, I should be adding to that context, and I should be doing a good job at whatever I'm doing. And uh, But I would be in context sometimes, and I just felt like, I was not made to be in that context. You know what I mean? Like I, I couldn't figure out how to add something to what was going on. And there's just some things that I'm not good at. That's just the way it is. Uh, I can think of like during COVID specifically trying to get better at doing social media. And I just, I hate social media. I don't enjoy this idea of like an online thing, which is ironic because uh, here I am making a podcast that's going online. Um, I don't enjoy that kind of interaction. Um, live streaming is something that 
you know, we got into it. I'm super grateful for the way that people can connect. And it's a really cool thing that we get to do, but it's not, um, it's not where my passion is. It's not where my gifting is, where my training is. Uh, and so I was like learning all this new stuff and I kind of started feeling like this, but, um, what I grew, uh, you know, as I was dealing with it, this, this, uh, longing grew inside me and the longing was for somebody who enjoyed this and would do this because I felt like, um, this was not like, I was not the correct body member to be doing what, what, what I was doing. And that's kind of what I'm getting at here is that first Corinthians 12 draws this picture and says, you know, not everybody is an ear and not everybody is a finger. Not everybody is the mouth or the eyes. Um, what's needed for the body of Christ is, um, all the members to be functioning together, doing different things that prop up Jesus in all the different ways uh, that we can. And it's actually a beautiful thing that one person can't do everything. It's actually a beautiful thing that I am not good at everything that I put my hands on. Um, it's a beautiful thing that there are people that are better at certain things than I am. And that is like counter to my wiring. I want to, whatever I do, do it to my best, but have, this is the difference, right? But have my best actually be really good. And uh, that's kind of the, the idea that I was raised with was that if you do your best, you will excel at what you're doing. The reality is though, some people are better at certain things than you are. And that's just the way it is. And um, God has actually designed each of us with um, abilities and skills and uh, talents and natural giftings, um, spiritual empowerment, platform, um, training. I think I already said that. Um, you know, he, all of these things have been, have, uh, we're, they're weaved into our lives. And when we're called to Jesus, Jesus has uh, given us the opportunity to use those things for his glory inside of the church. And I don't have all of the ways mastered to bring glory to God. You listening right now have gifts that I don't have. You have training that I don't have. You have skills that I don't have. You have a platform that I don't have. And um, all of us are needed for accomplishing the mission of God. And that's what 1 Corinthians 12 is all about. I love it. We are all the body of Christ and we're needed. Roped into that is this whole conversation about spiritual gifts. And what I wanted to do is I actually wanted to just give you a quick theology. Um, a quick idea of... My theology of the spiritual gifts, it's got to be quick. This could be like its own series, to be honest, because I have a really unique background with spiritual gifts because I grew up in, um, you know, a conservative context uh, where we talked about spiritual gifts, but they were kind of talked about in, um, I would say, like a somewhat restricting way. And somewhere along the line... Uh, our church kind of morphed into what it is now. And um, 
I would say maybe some of these convictions we might have always held, but we hadn't been as vocal about. And so um, there's two there's two kind of primary things that drive our theology. The first one is that we're what's called theologically charismatic. And so what does it mean to be charismatic? You say, I looked up your church. It's got Baptists in the name. How can you be charismatic? Well, um, first of all, we're the least Baptist Baptist church I know of because uh, it, whatever kind of Baptist you came from, I, I guarantee our church is different than that. We're kind of weird, a weird egg. We're not actually connected to a denomination. We're independent. And so um, we are what we are by, by the grace of God. Um, and uh, to, to quote, to quote the, the apostle there. Um, but uh, aside from that, we are theologically charismatic. What that means is that we believe, essentially what it means is that we believe that God can do whatever it is that he wants to do. So if he wants to miraculously heal somebody by the laying on of hands, uh, you know, if he wants to grow limbs out of somebody that lost a limb if he wants to shrink a tumor he absolutely could do that um if he wanted me to prophesy in a language that i don't know he could do that um if he wanted to send me a vision about somebody and ask me to share that with that person that i had a vision about um he could do that uh, that's what it means to be charismatic, is that you believe that the Spirit can continue to do the things that you see Him do in the Scripture. And so um, He could split waters. He could, you know, you could turn water into wine. If the Spirit compelled you to do so, and if He empowered you to do so, you could do it. Um, so uh, that's what, what it means to be theologically charismatic. So as you read through, you know, 12, 13, and 14, as we're talking about things like tongues, things like healings, things like prophecy, uh, words of knowledge, interpretation of languages you don't know, all that stuff, like we still think that's for the church today. Uh, so that charismatic, boom. Um, we're probably going to differ, and I think we should differ church to church on how those gifts are used and in what ways the Lord uses them and uh, to what extent do we... Um, Put our own will into that and how do we interact with with the, the spirit in an appropriate way especially while we're in the service of the church um, or what even a church service should look like um we're gonna disagree on all that and that's okay the second thing that kind of goes with that is that when we talk about the gifts of the spirit and this is something that might be more unique to me um and not necessarily my church as a whole but here's the thing um we like to describe what exactly the gifts are in fact i just i just did stuff like i talked about tongues i talked about word of knowledge talked about uh, visions and prophecy. Um, I talked about healing. We like to label the gifts and assign those gifts to people. So we like to see somebody that might have laid hands on somebody and they were healed. We say, that guy has the spiritual gift of healing. Um, and uh, we say, hey, you're leading our healing services now. That's usually how this, this, this goes, is that we kind of conscript people based on their gifts, right? And we see somebody, they have a nice voice. We say, you have the spiritual gift of singing or of music craftsmanship if we want to get biblical with it right and uh you're leading our music now um or or we uh we see somebody who has who is good at organization we say you have the spiritual gift of administration you're the church secretary now and we kind of conscript them because we said it's a spiritual gift i do i don't think that's 
how spiritual gifts work whatsoever. Um, when uh, when Paul says that um, each of us has been, you know, given a gift uh, so that the church may be built up, one of the best, um, you know, supports for this view that everybody has their own gift and that they're needed, you know, it, it says in 1227, now you are the body of Christ, individual members of it, and God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, prophets, their teachers, next miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administration, various kinds of tongues, you know, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all do miracles, do all gifts of healing, do all speak in other tongues, do all interpret, but desire greater gifts, I will show you even a better way. And he talks about love in, in, in first, first Corinthians 13. Now, um, that may sound like a list of gifts, and each person kind of has that gift, and then they're all needed for the ministry, and you kind of maybe map like Paul and Apollos from earlier, and how like Paul and Apollos both did different things, but they kind of built the church together. Um, and, and I like the idea of that, but um, in practice, and then even I think 14 kind of goes this, where you're praying for um, different gifts and stuff. Um, I actually think that what happens is God empowers us in each moment to do task. And when what we mean by spiritual gifts is that God can do, the Spirit can empower you to do anything that He wants in any moment that He wants, which means when you he if you lay hands on somebody and they are healed, you did not heal them whatsoever. The Spirit through you healed them. The spirit that lives inside each and every believer is powerful enough to accomplish any of these quote-unquote spiritual gifts, any miracle, any word of knowledge, any beautiful speech, any simple speech. The Spirit of God can do all of that. And because He lives inside of you, he can do all of that through you. And every instance of that is a spiritual gift. And so when we take somebody's natural gifting or somebody's learned skill and say that's your spiritual gift, what we're actually doing, I think, is we're demeaning the spirit and we're exalting the person who has that gifting or training. And so I... I uh, I'm not a natural musician. Uh, I'm perhaps I had some kind of um, talent for writing, um, but beyond that, uh, my musicianship is mostly a learned skill um, through through hard hard work, and less so natural talent. Certainly not uh, ear talent by any means. Um, if you are to say that my spiritual gift is music, what I think you're actually doing and doing that is, um, you're, you're demeaning what the spirit can actually do. Um, certainly the spirit can use, um, my, my music and, and it, and it can become what Paul might describe as a spiritual gift here, but um, the spirit working in congruence with 
what I've done is does not lock me into the spiritual gift of music. And it does not immediately make me qualified to, you know, lead the music ministry. Um, and it, the spirit can do whatever he wants. I mean, he could do healing he, he through me if he wanted to, even though that's not necessarily my, uh, you know, gifting. You know, when the spirit shows up and does something, that's the spirit doing something. And that is a gift of the spirit. And it has nothing to do with me. Um, except hopefully my willingness to submit to the Spirit of God. And uh, I think that's actually what Paul is talking about in this, because, you know, he goes, you guys are prophesying, and uh, you want to be leading the church and doing all this, but let me show you a better way, because if I speak with human or angelic tongues, but do not love, I'm not anything, you know. And so what Paul does is he, he, he says, if you lower yourself, take the attitude of love for your other people, submit yourself to the Spirit, and get in sync with what he's thinking, which is this kind of loving, um, selfless attitude, that is where you can actually be used the greatest by God. And the Spirit can do amazing, amazing things. Uh, through you, if you would just submit to him and let him do whatever he wants to do. Don't prescribe what the Spirit wants to do in your life. Don't lock it into a box. Even describing it can be difficult. Instead, focus on being submitted to him and obey what he asks you to do and constantly live this awareness like, Spirit, I want you to move through me, whether I am taking offering uh, and, and counting it after church, whether I am uh, singing on stage, whether I am praying over somebody for healing, leading a life group, um, preparing a sermon, mowing the lawn, uh, whatever it is that I'm doing, God, can I just be spirit-empowered in this moment? Can you do something amazing in me and show love for other people and help me to do the same? That is what spiritual gifting is. It is a submission to the Spirit and a devotion to love and a desire to be used of God in whatever way God wants you to be used. All right, the last thing I wanted to mention was one that we got into last week. 1 Corinthians 15, I was listening to the podcast about that, and I think I may have misrepresented a little bit uh, what's going on in 1 Corinthians 15 with the resurrection. Um, what I said uh, in that podcast was something to the effect, um, I, I kind of took the conversation, Andrew had asked this great question about why the people at Corinth weren't, weren't believing in the resurrection. And I talked about how weird that was to us because we've been raised with this idea that there's life after death and um, Second Temple Jews didn't necessarily believe there was life after death. But, you know, uh, after thinking about it, I was like, okay, you know, we're in Corinth. There's certainly Jews there, but there's also Gentiles and the prevailing philosophy of the day totally did believe in some kind of afterlife because they would have been, um, you know, inspired by Greek and Roman thought. And I even kind of mentioned that a little bit in it um what i want to clarify is 
specifically what Paul is concerned with is actually a bodily resurrection. And uh, this is something that's not in hardly anything at all, including other religions that have um, afterlife of their own. So if you take, for instance, Greek and Roman thoughts, uh, if you kind of think of you know mythology, uh, generally it had to do with your soul. So once you're... Um, so you were, you started as this sort of disembodied soul, you were born into this body, and when you die, your soul is freed from the body, and uh, it goes into, you know, this, you know, depending upon, you know, who's talking, but also uh, who you were as a person, your soul would then go other places, perhaps it would drift in kind of like this medium state, perhaps it would be tortured eternally, perhaps it would be, you know, ascended um, to some sort of demigod or, or even, even you know, divine uh, godhood. Um, in the case of a lot of Roman emperors and stuff, you know, there was this thought that they would, they were, they were deified after death uh, sometimes. So, so yeah, so they believed in a, in a afterlife, but the afterlife didn't include your body at all. And um, what was going around during this was also this idea that your body was intrinsically evil, I'm going to be careful here because there's um, original sin dialogues that sometimes get going, but uh, what's important is that there were, a, there was a lot of thought going on that you as a person, so like me as Michael Sean, the part of me that is me is my soul, and that was kind of like the prevailing idea, is my soul was who I am, and my body is simply an enclosure at best or at worst, an entrapment for my soul, and that in death, I'd be rid of my body, and my soul would be um, returned to perhaps its more natural state of disembodiment, and uh, it was treated however it was afterwards. So I think, you know, in other, um, certainly there are other religions of the day, um, but also many today, actually, similarly, are trying to kind of ascend beyond our body, um, perhaps reach an enlightenment or a, you know, some sort of spiritual oneness. Um, but what we need to remember is that human beings are actually created with a body before the fall, so our body is not the reason why evil exists. Um, in fact, when, uh, when Paul refers to maybe fleshly stuff, which we often associate only with our body, uh, the flesh is not, uh, restricted to just our body. It's actually a problem in our soul because our soul is disconnected from our creator naturally. And that's why Jesus needs to reconnect us with God in the first place. And God intends to remake both our souls and our bodies. And that's what's important about the resurrection specifically. So Paul's not just talking about eternity. Um, he's talking about an eternity that includes a bodily resurrection, just like Jesus went through. And so I just feel like I didn't do a great job explaining that. Um, the fact that Jesus was raised, that he has a new body after the grave, uh, is actually important to our theology because as human beings, we need our bodies. That's why humans aren't made to live in heaven. We're not made to live in the spiritual realm in which um, Yahweh, uh, more particularly um, 
God the Father and the Spirit, um, you know, and 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 Jesus as well. Um, but we're not we're not made to live in some sort of disembodied spiritual realm that we often think of with heaven. We're actually made to live inside of the created scope of earth, which is why in Revelation we not only see um, God uh, do away with the corrupted reality that we live in now, but also recreate a new heavens, not just a new heavens though, a new heavens and a new earth. And we actually live in that earth um, and God sort of communes with us um, in the in the revelation imagery through a new Jerusalem. So there's actually a, a you know literal city that's depicted there. And uh, you know we're not really here to talk about revelation and what exactly that means. But what is clear is that we are made for eternity with God. Yes, but in eternity in our bodies and created in the place where we belong, which is here, uh, but a here that is not corrupted by sin. And so. Uh, that's the important of what Paul is talking about doctrinally. We've got to remember that our bodies are important. And actually, that has a ton of theological implications that we don't have time to get into. Perhaps maybe we'll do a podcast about why the body matters at some point. It's actually a, an area of study that is uh, very interesting to me. And it's also an area of study that has a lot of implications for different uh, topics within theology and within sociology as well. All right, so in wrapping this thing up, let's talk about where we're going next. Um First of all, I forgot. Oh, I forgot. I was going to open the thing up with this. Let's close with it instead. This, we have passed at this point, pod fade, meaning that there's usually a certain point, usually by episode seven or eight, where most podcasts die and uh, hosts stop doing the podcast thing. And I understand why, because this has actually been a lot of work. Um, it's not just like sitting in front of a microphone and then, pressing play and then pressing upload and then it's there like there it's a lot of work to like prepare for this and edit and all that stuff anyway we have survived pod fade we have made it past the mark that most podcasts make it and so um congrats you guys have been a part of this thank you for listening and um i'm super excited thank you for those of you that have helped make it happen by being a guest on the show as well this is uh this is huge so celebrate yeah that's awesome i'm so happy uh for that um and it, it, I'm not planning on wrapping up. I mean, we've got a lot of more things. I have more guests to interview, and uh, perhaps we'll do another series like this. But I think for the um, next at least five or six episodes, I have some new guests lined up, and they're one-offs. They're just they're not a series. It's just let's talk to different guests about different topics. And um, I'm excited because there are people that have studied certain things much deeper than I have, and I'm excited to sit with them and say, hey, I actually don't know a ton about what I'm talking about here. Can you help me understand a little bit more about your position? And so I'm super excited about that. Some of the people that I'm going to be bringing on the show are people that I and people who have been raised in the same context as me would not readily agree with. And so I'm excited to hear some fresh perspectives about things that um, I at one point in my life may have been very dogmatic against, however, have become more curious recently. And I've been kind of evaluating and saying, hey, you know, maybe um, the way that I understood it isn't necessarily the best way to understand it. And so I'm excited to have those kinds of conversations. I also have some conversations lined up with people who um, would line up with me theologically, but still have some sort of expertise in something that I don't have expertise in. And so I'm, I'm excited just to learn. I hope that you guys are too. And I hope that 
I can um, do a good job uh, communicating with them and drawing out things that are not just helpful for me, but also helpfully for you guys listening. I kind of feel like in wrapping up our series, I just kind of want to say a, a quick prayer um, because I feel like this has been huge for me. Like studying First Corinthians has been really big for me. I feel like I've learned a lot, grown closer to the Lord. I've become more aware of ways that I need to follow him better. And perhaps there are some of you guys out there who feel the same way. I know I've had many conversations with the people that were on this podcast, and we just talked like, hey, this has been a little bit of a paradigm shift. And uh, I feel like I have been able to, me personally, Michael Sean, have, have been able to really um, dive into Christ in new ways because of this study. So I thank you for joining me for the, the process. You're kind of at the end, you're, you're joining me at the end of this process. It really has been almost a full year. Actually, it has been more than a year now that I think about it, um, worth of kind of First Corinthians being in the background of, of my thinking and sometimes even in the foreground as I've preached through several of these passages and, and led a life through through them as well. And so uh, I thank you for joining the journey with me, and I just want to pray really quick for us. Jesus, you are so amazing, and you are so multifaceted, and it, it, it will take an eternity of knowing you to even grasp an inch of who you are. And uh, yeah, that's so amazing. And uh, yet you have lowered yourself to my, to my standing and uh, spoken with me. And you have revealed yourself in the text of Scripture. And I thank you that upon further study, the result is your love for us and your desire for us to love others. So I pray for me and for those listening that we would be emissaries of your love and uh, that we would dignify the people around us, that we'd seek to understand them, that we would humanize them in ways that they are not often humanized by people who disagree or who are different than them. I pray that you would help us to serve you in all the ways that you've called us to do so, that we'd honor men and women in ministry, that we would honor the different gifts, the different skills that are brought to the table by your church, that we honor our unity with one another and seek other people's good above our own. Thank you for your love for us and for your spirit that empowers us to love others. Here I pray. Amen. You've been listening to the Unison Church Podcast. If you're a Christ follower, I hope this has encouraged you to grow closer, not only to him, but also to his family. May we unite in our allegiance to him and raise our voices together to worship Yahweh. If you're not a Christ follower, I hope that this has represented Christ well to you. May this spark your curiosity towards Jesus and his people. In any case, I hope you'll connect with us again here on the podcast and share it with a friend. You can find links in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to us through other ways as well. Thanks for listening, and I look forward to being with you again soon.